This is our observance day, and everyone has taken their, reaffirmed their precepts. Venerable Sajita recited the Pratimoka in 52 minutes and 8 seconds. <laughs> From the moment he started with oop to the time, to the exact moment he said tongue. <laughs> Anyway, I do have fun with my, my new world clock and timer. <laughs> this, we've been on this retreat now for two weeks, so that, that is uh, just to observe the, reflect on the result of it, all that some people have been ill and so forth, so that it's, this is all a part of it, isn't it? When we, when we uh, began the retreat, I asked you to accept the, the whole of what happens within the next two months. You know, we kind of make your intention to, to see that, not, not to, to try to have just the kind of retreat that you would like, but to to open yourself to the possibility of whatever. So psychologically, this, this prepares us for the way life moves and changes. But when we set our mind on, on having a certain kind of, trying to make life into what we want, then we're always feeling frustrated when it doesn't go quite the way that we'd like it to go. It's just simple, simple uh, things like this that one can begin to, to learn how to live in, in, in within this human realm without causing endless misery and suffering to oneself and others. It's by learning how to, to work within it, how to understand it, how to operate within the conventions and limitations, the way life is in the, the time, the place. One thing we realize that we, because we're born, we get sick. We get sick so that, so that uh, some of you who've had illnesses uh, think, oh, you know, it's, this is interfering with the retreat. Why should I, I was hoping I would be have really good health for this retreat. It's because you, you'd like, you haven't included sickness within that. The sickness is a part of it, isn't it? It's a part of our human experience. So we're just changing the attitude to the acceptance and, and the willingness to to look at it and, and understand it, rather than just try to get rid of it. Now, the um, meditating in, in the rooms alone is important to, to really look at that, not as an opportunity to, to get out of anything, or but to really develop practice of, of being alone. Uh, and that means to, to try to, uh, like I say, for in, the, in the monk's vihara, to, to um, say, when you go to your room, say, between one and two, to, to remain in there, rather than every time you feel you have to go to the, like the loo or to or to get something, or go out, or just follow restlessness, you, you resolve to stay for the 
that for that time, just out of consideration of not having people closing doors and going up and down the hall all afternoon, consider the times allotted. Just because living in community means that we have to uh, consider the people around us, not just uh, to to think that we're we're not related anymore to them, or that it doesn't matter what we what we do because it's uh, we're just concerned with ourselves. But we we contemplate how to live in in an agreeable way with the people here. So when in this way, like in the monks' vihara, the the um, building, of course, uh, lends itself to uh, being uh, full of uh, possible dis- distractions and noises. I used to live in the in what is now called the Tanjau Kun's room, and uh, remember, it used to sound like like herds of elephants going down the hall. Sometimes they used to slam the door. And then, and then these elephants would charge down the hall, <coughs> and my head was 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 uh, the, the 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 mat that I slept on. The head, my head was up against the wall, on the wall of the corridor. So, and because of the structure of that building, even even people who aren't uh, particularly heavy-footed still. You could, you could feel that. So, uh, when the, in those days a thief was here, he made these nice little signs eh, of a, of an elephant wearing uh, ballet slippers. <laughs> <laughs> that was for me, trying to get people to to walk lightly down that hall. Then to develop that sense of <coughs> of sitting uh, and and stillness. Because when you're alone, of course, you in the group we tend to be very much aware of the people around us, which helps us to sit very straight and not move even uh, and, and kind of endure pain because we, one thing is that uh, it's a group support. We want to, uh, we don't want to make noises. We don't want to, uh, we want to do what everyone else is doing, support the atmosphere. But when we're alone, then we can do anything. Nobody's going to know. So there's that tendency to, to carry on a kind of one kind of schizophrenia, where on the social plane you're, you're this perfect image, and on, in the private you're something else, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. One can say, take one's hair down, <laughs> let one's hair down when you're alone. We had any hair, but now you're developing this this practice of stillness, which is everywhere, isn't it? It's whether you're in a group or you're alone, in the middle of London or in the, on top of the Mount Everest, isn't it? It's the it's the stillness of mind to be the stillness. So we're moving towards that silence and the stillness. Like when you see see nature now, just to contemplate the the trees, the still trying to to be like the trees, just here and now, without having making anything, adding anything, just being still and quiet, without having to be somebody or be be a person. I find this very pleasant practice to just stand among the trees and just always uh, meditate on the silence. Then there's a sense of, of of real peacefulness and not 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 me having to do something or become something 
or just the habitual conceptual proliferations that go on in a mind that that is is always uh, that's never moving towards the stillness or silence. So if you look at especially in the winter time here, it is still and silent. And this is a, this is our symbol, isn't it? Our sign. And we can hear the the inner voices, the the screams and cries, and the and the. Uh, Whine, the whining ones and the complaining ones and the grumblers and all this, but we're not feeding these creatures. We're letting them go and moving towards the stillness, the silence. Now, to be with the silence, we have to. We have to really. Realize, we have to realize the, the, the stillness and the silence. In other words, be that way, be still and silent. If one is just caught up in restlessness and just follows the, the restless uh, sensations in the body or the, the mental proliferations, then of course silence is an impossible, even uh, threatening experience. If it does happen, it can be rather frightening. Because one is so identified with the agitation uh, of the sensory realm and the restlessness of it and the birth getting born into it, into just endless seeking after, absorptions and becoming. But the emphasis here now is, is to recognize that for what it is and to not, no longer follow the, to, to train oneself, to, to, to train the body towards calm, calm the bodily formation. It doesn't mean to just suppress it and ignore it and, and persecute it, and deny it and, uh, and that. It's not to dismiss but to train, because these bodies need to be trained. They need to be trained with kindness, for one thing, like a good uh, trainer of, an, of a horse or an elephant, where the, the trainer is, isn't a brute just beating up the, 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 the elephant to be obedient. That's not, you, get, you don't get a good a properly trained elephant I hear. Not that I've ever done it, trained an elephant. <clears throat> but I know, like with animals, with cats, dogs, if you, if you brutalize them, they are not very nice animals, are they? They're just frightened and uh, untrustworthy and, and they're, uh, they're wretched and miserable creatures. So that to train an animal doesn't mean you, you just pamper it and just give in to everything it wants, but you, you, you train it, guide it. The same with your own body. You need to, to look at your body as something to, to be trained and to be respected and guided, not to just follow its, its um, just its restless energy and its habits. And, but it doesn't mean that you should deny it everything either and, and ignore it. But to reflect what, what does it need, how to take care of it, how to train it, how to calm it. One thing is through meditation is you do that sweeping practice, you concentrate on the sensations of your body as you go through the body. Just contemplating the sensations, the body will feel calm. It will feel very, very calm and, and very happy because the body needs to be noticed and needs to be accepted for what it is. And, and, to, and when we concentrate, even on, say, tensions in the body or unpleasant sensations uh, or just uh, uh, rather sensationless parts of the body, as we begin to, to just say, bring into consciousness or bring into awareness anyway, the, 
various parts of the body that we don't ever really notice unless they, they give forth some kind of strong sensation. By doing that, going from the top of the head down to the soles of the feet and back up again, the body will feel relaxed. It just naturally seems to go toward, towards feeling at ease and relaxed. It's very healthy. Uh, meditation practice to do that. And calming the mind, say with anapanasati, the mind is distracted, wandering and all over the place, then you you concentrate on the breathing. And that will help to to train the mind, to, to not just be caught up in the conceptual proliferation, restless wanderings that our, that our minds can do if we don't we don't train them. But the trainer needs to be someone who's, who's both kind and firm. Not stubborn, not pushy or brutal, not kind in the sense of, of giving in to everything, that's not really being kind, but Caring, being concerned, having the right amount of interest, the proper attitude towards your own body. (coughs) Towards the mind. And then as these formations begin to calm down and not be so so difficult to bear and so wild and and, uh, so unpleasant, then we begin to feel much more, uh, we're much more aware of the emptiness of mind, the silence. We can abide in emptiness more and more. Where in emptiness we, we f- there's no self, there's just the, the, the present moment the way it is. The self we can see if, if, if such views arise, we're aware of them as that which arises and ceases. And this is the, the real uh, emptiness, shunyata, of Buddhism. To re- really be able to, to know the empty mind, to abide in emptiness, Then one feels, well, I say, just using the trees as an example, the barren trees of winter. Just, uh, just being able to stand among them and, and look at them without creating anything onto them, without spewing forth any, anything onto them, without having, feeling that one has to, or that one should be doing something else. One can feel just a sense of perfect calm and contentment with just being still, like the trees. Not having to prove anything, not having to become anything, not having to defend. And then maybe our egos say, well, I don't want to become like a tree, I want to express my true inner creativity or my unique personality or my... <laughs> and we listen to that. We hear that in, in, that can go on wanting to become something, the special, the, 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 that which is extra, that which stands out or exists. This word existence means to, to stand forth. Something that doesn't exist doesn't stand for. So, so when we say non-existence, talking about non-existing, we're not talking about killing ourselves and, and no longer being alive, but no longer following the desire to exist, to stand out, to become something, to be separate. And that desire to be separate and to to stand out from everyone else. So that the, the, the uh, realization of non-existence 
Now that sounds like a real nihilistic view, doesn't it? To say, what does what Ajahn Sumedha do? He teaches that we should all try to, we all move toward non-existence. He doesn't want, he doesn't want to exist anymore. Ajahn Sumedha doesn't want to exist. Oh, the poor man, he needs to go to a psychiatrist. <laughs> Not that, that, it's not even that, not wanting to exist. It's just realizing the peace of not existing. Because non-existence is peaceful. And when there's non-existence and emptiness, then there is the knowing, the brightness, wisdom, awareness, clarity, Enlightenment. Things are as they are, the suchness, as isness. Now this is taking your the human the human individual in the Western style of being a unique personality, uh, a, a, a special creation of God, and all of that, and this thing of a Western religion. Like, like with Jews, they're all the chosen people of God. They're, special, they're more special than the rest of us. <laughs> so they're, they're, they have the, they've always had this, this idea that they're special, specially chosen. And in, say, Christianity, there's so many sects of Christianity that feel that, that they are the called, the ones that Jesus calls and all the rest aren't, like the Jehovah's Witness, feel that they are the, uh, there's only a few even of the Jehovah's Witnesses that are going to make it. I think they even have a number. And then they, these, these ones that will make it will live forever in this eternal paradise with God. And they'll be special because everyone else is going to just disappear, vanish. Only these special ones. And then in, in just Western values, the emphasis on, on being uh, unique and special and, and child of God and, and uh, all of the, these, these views of being an individual. Now those those views of a self, what what happens to to you? Now, just speaking from my own experience, the the attachment to being a, a, a unique personality, or even any kind of personality, or even the attachment to the fear that you may not have any personality that's worthwhile. <laughs> Isn't it? Sometimes I used to worry, maybe maybe I don't have a very nice personality. Uh, maybe I don't have any personality. My my peer group in high school is say if somebody doesn't have any personality, that means they're pretty boring, dreary stuff. So you wanted to be have a, a sizzling personality, sparkling, be a unique individual, be someone a success. You didn't want to be a failure. Didn't want to be mediocre, just the ordinary bloke, the ordinary guy, just any any old person. You, this ambition to be special, individual, and unique, and all this is very much supported by a culture and religion that tends to encourage this this attitude. And the result, from from my experience, was that it was suffering. There has to be so much investment, so much time, so much worry, anxiety, frustration, jealousy, envy, <coughs> fear, and all this resulted from this. It was very, very painful to, to always be caught in that, in that desire to become somebody. And as long as one desires to become somebody, then 
one always is going to fear that we'll not become anything very good or you'll become something you don't like. Because they go together, fear and desire. So non-existence doesn't mean that we don't, we don't want to have any personalities and we just want to become kind of dreary, bland, featureless, uh, dull and boring people. That's not it. But it's the, it's the ability to, to abide in being, in the subtlety of just being aware being open and sensitive without being caught in the delusions of trying to become something else. Trying to seek existence, to exist, to stand out in some way, to come forth in some way. Now, as you, as you develop this path more and more, at first it seems a bit hopeless because sometimes the, the uh, uh, tendencies of a lifetime are so strong towards existence and becoming and, and emphasizing yourself as an individual and a, and a personality that, that these habits are so strong. See, you know, you're, at first one tends to want to, you feel that you shouldn't be that way that you should try to be nobody. But trying to be nobody is still being somebody. That's not what I'm saying, is it? To be not become nobody. But to realize the truth and to, to, to realize the emptiness of mind to where you, you know that so well and you can abide in emptiness rather than this endless round of existence, seeking to be reborn and to exist again and again and again. Because in emptiness, then we, we feel our most, when, when you realize emptiness and incline toward that, that's where you feel most at ease, most happy, most peaceful. That's where there is peacefulness and, and and uh, contentment. Where in the levels of existence, we're never going to be content with them. They never, they never satisfy, and we never find contentment within them. Even the best of them. The highest jhanas are still unsatisfying to us. The most blissful conditioned states of the mind are still unsatisfactory to us. They cannot satisfy us. And this the Buddha made very clear that he, even uh, all forms of human happiness and worldly success and so forth are really terribly disappointing and, and not, not satisfying and, not, and, and can only be momentarily gratifying and happy momentarily only. And then the moment when it's gone, then we have, we're caught in the same process of seeking again to be reborn, becoming something else. Trying to find maybe another moment of that gratification and happiness. We have to start all over again finding something else to, to try to gratify us and make us happy for one moment. And then when we get it, we have it, one moment of gratification and happiness, and then we have to start again looking for something else. One becomes so weary, wearisome. Now as, as you are right now with your human bodies, and all that they, they have right or wrong in them at this moment, <laughs> as they happen to be, as you, uh, they, these, these human bodies, whether they're young or old, male or female, strong or weak, 
if we if we don't make problems about them and don't don't identify and no longer seek to identify or to to try to to make them into something else, we begin to just accept them as they are and to learn how to live with them with the right attitude, then we begin to go, say, in the, in the right direction toward true peacefulness. And we have the support, don't we? We have space, we have sky, nature itself is always a symbol there's always the sign, the stillness, the silence is ever present wherever we are, no matter what condition we happen to be in. When we know emptiness, then at the right times we can be special according to time and place without it becoming an attachment. One, one feels, say, that one can one can appear and disappear according to time and place and what is needed rather than not to to just go and stand among the trees for the rest of my life. (laughs) Not what I'm saying. But manifestation and disappearance are in uh, they one can become be some something something that is useful and helpful to others, or appearance, and then the disappearance. It's not a permanent position. It's not a a role that one is trying to to hold on to and defend anymore. Begins to feel a sense of ease and freedom to, to appear and disappear. Remember, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. Very, very self-conscious. So, to sit and to even give a, a, a to give a, say something in public was was absolutely terrifying. Remember when I was in the navy and just having to say "aye, aye, sir" was, I'd be shaking. In just a, in, a, in in like in a roll call, here, sir, just having to raise my voice in public because of the self-consciousness. Consciousness of myself as an individual in a group. And then, uh, having, ever having to give uh, public talks, I avoided that like, like anything, just really dreaded the idea of ever having to, uh, to uh, address a group of people. And then uh, I became a school teacher, but uh, by that time, I, when you're teaching a subject, I, I, was, I was teaching in, um, in North Borneo for two years, little Chinese children, so it wasn't, wasn't such a, a threat, eight, nine-year-old Chinese kids. Then going to Thailand uh, and and becoming a monk there and then eventually having to give talks uh, (coughs) to Thai people in Thai. And all this self-consciousness became apparent. Kind of the the highs you'd get when you felt you'd really given a good talk and everybody said, oh, that that was wonderful. You're really good. Tomato, you really, you really can give good dumb and feel really high. And then sometimes you give a really stupid talk. And you go, oh, I don't ever want to give another talk again. I didn't ordain to give talks. And you want to, to kind of chicken out and disappear, run away. Or, you know, then, then. Uh, uh, the, but then the idea was to keep watching all this, to notice. The Po Chow used to keep, would always encourage me to um, to just keep aware of the pride and conceit and the embarrassment and the self-consciousness that I would feel. And 
fortunately in Thailand, the people are such that they're very kind of, uh, they, they, uh, they aren't, they're just grateful for, for a monk giving a talk. So even if it's not a very good talk, they don't seem, it doesn't seem to be, to upset them very much. They're quite, they still seem quite grateful about it. <laughs> so that made it quite easy, actually. One time, I remember at a, at a katina ceremony where we had to sit up all night, he said, uh, Sumato, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. <laughs> And up to this time, I'd only talked for half an hour, and that was a strain. Three hours. And he knew, he said, he, and with Ajahn Chah, I always felt if he said I had to do something, then I would do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. <laughs> and I had to sit there and watch pe- people just uh, lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. <laughs> and at the end of the three hours, there were a few polite old ladies still sitting there. So that was, no, that wasn't Ajahn Chah saying, okay, so made her go in and bowl them over with some really scintillating stuff. You know, entertain them and, and really uh, suck it to them, a real naman. Uh, it was more or less, I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to just look at this self-consciousness. This, uh, the, the, the posing, the, the, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, wanting to get up approval and attention, and, and so forth. All these were, would come up during these talks over these past, what, 15 years? <laughs> I've been doing this <laughs> over 15 years. And then, they, the, but the, med, the meditation itself was one in which um, just more and more one be, uh, felt a, 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 real, a real understanding of it, of what the suffering of self, the self-view. And then, then they, through that, they, the, the, the abiding in emptiness. And I, when I first went to Wat Bapong, I used to see, whenever Ajahn Chah gave a talk, he'd sit up there and he'd close his eyes. And then he'd start talking. And I think, why does he close his eyes? You know, can't he talk with his eyes open? <laughs> 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 Because I couldn't, then I realized that 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 Nung Po was always abiding in that emptiness, and then what would come out would be appropriate to the to the time and the place. He said never to prepare a talk. When I started giving talks, I thought, well, I'll prepare them, try to make them interesting, and he he didn't care if they were interesting or what. Just to, to let them to to let them come. Come out. Now, when there's non-existence, then there's no, there's no self anymore. So there's no self-consciousness, and there's none of that, that. Uh, uh, the problems that we w- build out of that. And that's one of the great human anguish. One of great human anguish, isn't it? The, the what do people think of me? What, am, what, what do they say? What do people say about me? Do they like me or don't they like me? And so forth. The, 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 one can be so so bound, so bound up 
with the anxiety about what other people think of you. I think we've all, so many of us, have suffered from that, that concern. And then we've rebelled against it, haven't we? I don't care what anybody thinks of me. They can think what they want. I don't care. But you really do. Otherwise you wouldn't have to say that, would you? <laughs> so, that, so that if you go from one extreme saying, I don't, I, you know, I do care to I don't care. But emptiness and non-existence, there's, there's nobody to care or not to care. There's ability to manifest and disappear according to what is appropriate. Just like, this is the way things actually are. There's not really any people, really any real personalities here at all. Sometimes personalities manifest, don't they, at the appropriate times of like talking to you, then you manifest your personality. And maybe you're, you're still caught up in being a person in your own mind, but these are merely the conditions and those conditions come out of fear and desire. But when there's emptiness, then personality still operates, still, so there's still a, a quality and, a, and uh, different qualities that appear in, in, through these forms and be charming or whatever, but it doesn't mean that we, 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 can't, we no longer have any charm or that we're all just the same exact uh, kind of thing, the same conditions, this is kind of like ciphers and, or ants in a, or bees in a hive. There's still the, the myriad differences of character and, and personality that, that, can be, that can manifest, but there's no delusion about it and there's no suffering. Like if you, if those of you who knew Ajahn, who, who didn't ever meet Ajahn Chah, he had to, a, he was personality plus, 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 wasn't he? He was radiant, charming, witty, uh, intelligent, uh, compassionate, uh, joyful. He could be quite, uh, he had a good sense of humor. He could really turn on the charm when he wanted to, when it was appropriate. I was telling some of the monks today about some of the things he did in, in England, which were quite out of character for a Thai monk. Like one time we were invited to this... Was I talking about this this morning? No. What do we bore you with? Repetition. Right? <laughs> we were invited to a um, to a, a woman's home for a vegetarian meal, and she prepared this fantastic meal, just the most delicious kind of foods and uh, that y you could ever imagine. She's a very good cook, and obviously, it's put a lot of effort into creating this fantastic meal. And I was the translator for Ajahn Chah at that time. So we were sitting there, and, and she, uh, she was bustling about offering this food and looking so enthusiastic. And, and Ajahn Chah was sitting there kind of assessing the situation. And then suddenly he says, this is the most delicious and wonderful meal. It's absolutely wonderful and meal I've ever had. And I translated that. And monks never comment on the food, you see. We're not supposed to say that. And yet, Lung Po suddenly manifested this, this charming character that complimented uh, a woman that needed to be complimented. Because <laughs> that was she really, that made her feel so happy. 
And that's really something. If you know, if you've ever been trained in the Thai system, that that would be considered uh, not inappropriate. Because uh, you, you're not supposed to do that. But yet, he had the feeling for the time and the place and the, the person he was with. What would be appropriate? What would be useful? What would be kind? So he could step out of the kind of designated role of what you're supposed to be according to the, to the, uh, to the um, tradition and, and, and manifest in ways that are, it wasn't wrong, it wasn't a, uh, you know, like a, an offense really, or he wasn't breaking any rules, but it was, it was out of character, but it was appropriate to the time and place and to the needs and understandings of the people he was with. Now that shows wisdom and the ability to respond to, to a situation, not be just rigidly bound within, within, a, uh, within a convention that, that blinds you and, 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 and does not allow you to, to do what is appropriate to time and place. So that was a, a manifestation and then a disappearance, because I never heard him do that again. <laughs> and then one time uh, somebody said to him, what? You're such a charming man. You're such a charming Ajahn. Why? What, what? He says, well, he says, it's my, it's my magnet. He says, it's what, what I attract people with. Because he had, he had uh, this, this kind of charismatic quality and, and charm. And he, could, he says, it's my, it's my magnet. You can draw people in. And people then listen, and then, they, then, they can, then he would teach them the Dhamma. He was, he was very much aware how to use these qualities of attractiveness and charm, not, not to reinforce self-consciousness or conceit at all. There's no conceit at all there. But the willingness to use these abilities out of compassion and kindness, not out of egomania. When one really, one always saw Ajahn Chah as a man that was perfectly at ease, and he, he could, like in, in, here in England, uh, and the two times he was here, especially the first time, the first time he'd ever left Thailand and came to a, and, and then coming to a, such a totally different country as, as Britain, he always seemed very much at ease within it. He could be, feel at ease because there was nobody to be frightened, no desires, no fears, nobody to become anything. So that the empty mind and the uh, is is the abiding of ease, of being at ease, where there's no self, no fear or desire to be to be deluded with. And yet there's the ability to respond to the present situation in an appropriate and suitable way. What could be better than that, I ask you? Better than, certainly much more peaceful and more inspiring than becoming Superman, isn't it? How many of you would rather become Superman <laughs> or Wonder Woman? How many of you would like to be the most beautiful woman in the world? Or the most admired? Or how many of you would like to become the, the most handsome and desirable 
male, powerful male in the whole world. Compared to, say, the, 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 the goal of Nibbana, non-existence, not being attached to anything, emptiness. It's strange, isn't it? Just, those, just the contrast of say, becoming the best person in the whole world, or the strongest or the most beautiful. The worldly values, what are, what are worldly values? But having power and, uh, track and beauty... Wealth, all these, these worldly, having, um, being a success, being happy, having a lot of happiness. But in uh, the Lokya Dhammas, the Lokya Dhammas are all, they all have their opposites, don't they? Success, there's always attached to failure. Happiness is always attached to unhappiness. Praise is always attached to blame, and so forth. Good fortune, bad fortune. Good health and bad health. So that the worldly values, if you choose, if you choose uh, wealth and power and success and praise, you're going to get the others along with them, because they they're like two sides of the same coin. You can't separate the one from the other. So the worldly values are never, never really going to content. They're never going to feel content or at ease with them. They never really feel safe or at peace with the, with the world. The world is an unsafe place. It's not peaceful and it's not where we really belong. So that as you begin to understand and realize the peace through emptiness and non-existence, non-self, which is not annihilation, but enlightenment, freedom, liberation, true peace, true knowledge. So this evening, we have this opportunity to uh, practice uh, the whole night. invite you all to do so. And uh, what at midnight, they'll come and invite us over for 